Please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings. I want to continue my series of sermons that I was working through in the life of Solomon before the Christmas time. And we're now in 1 Kings in the life of Solomon. And I want you to notice that we come to a very lengthy passage of Scripture or a section of Scripture when Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem about a thousand years before the time of Jesus Christ. And today, what I want to do, how I want to approach this long section of Scripture from chapters 5 all the way to chapter 8, is to give you an overview of the subject matter concerning the temple and this temple theme in the Bible. I'm not going to get into the details of this passage of Scripture. Uh, Maybe next week we'll look at that. But I want you to turn and look at the the titles in your Bible in chapter 5. And I want you to appreciate at least the the amount of detail that the Bible goes to into this subject matter. Look at chapter 5. The title of my Bible says this, that Solomon prepares to build the temple. And in this chapter, there's a man who's not a Jewish man named Hiram. He's the king of Tyre, which is outside of Israel. He's going to help David build this massive temple. Now look at chapter 6. It's a long chapter. Solomon builds the temple in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, he builds other buildings. And then in chapter 7, he talks about the bronze pillars that are going to be in front of the temple and even the man who works on them. And then as you go through the bronze pillars, there's going to be the altar there. There's going to be the sea. They call it the sea. It's a huge bowl. And it represents the waters from heaven. The priests would take the waters out of that bowl and cleanse themselves and baptize themselves before they went into the holy place. And then as you go into the holy place in chapter 7, there's the carts where it symbolizes the chariots and the army of God coming out of heaven. And then there's furnishings in the temple with all the lampstands there in the holy place. And then there's that most holy place in chapter 8. Look at chapter 8. In chapter 8, it talks about the ark of the covenant that will be in that most holy place. And then there's a long speech that Solomon gives as the, the temple work is complete. There's a dedication all throughout chapter 8. And he, ble- he prays. And then he blesses the assembly. And then he dedicates the, the temple to the Lord. And in chapter 9, the Lord shows up again and talks to Solomon. And then Solomon... And then Hiram exchanged gifts in chapter 9. And then there's other achievements there of Solomon in chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba shows up and loves the glory of the temple and everything that Solomon has built. And she's so impressed. That's the long section here of this building of the temple in chapters from chapter 8 all the way to chapter 9 and 10. And let's begin now with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that this theme of the temple will be impressed upon our hearts and you'll give us your insight and understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, to summarize this temple theme today and this extended passage of Scripture, here's what I want to do simply today. I want to talk about the location of this passage, where it's put in the book of 1 Kings. Secondly, I want to talk about the length of this passage. Why is it so long? And thirdly, I want to talk about the logic 
of this passage concerning the temple, the logic or the reasoning behind the temple. Well, let's look at the location of this passage of Scripture. In the book of 1 Kings, this temple project of the building of the temple, it's located in the sixth section of Solomon's life. Now, I say the sixth section because the author of 1 Kings is writing the life of Solomon with a background, with a skeleton or a backdrop. And the backdrop or the background, as you well know in many of my sermons, is the seven days of creation. He uses the seven days of creation as a, as a skeleton, as an outline, and then he builds upon those themes the life of Solomon. And we're now in the sixth section. Let me summarize for you these themes, and you have a handout you can look, look, out, look at later in your bulletin. But the first section is verses chapters 1 through 2. That's the beginning. He's enthroned. The second section is he is positioned like the sky above us, is positioned on the second day of creation. Solomon was positioned with wisdom. He, God gave him the knowledge of good and evil to rule over all of Israel. And then on the third day of creation, there was first fruits of the, of the plants coming up. Where there's a first fruit of Solomon's wisdom. The first fruit is this. Remember the two harlots, the two prostitutes? He determined which mother was a true mother. That was a sample, a first fruit of how his wisdom is going to affect the entire region. And then on the fourth day of creation, Solomon starts delegating. In chapter 4, he's delegating rulers here and rulers there. That's what God does on day four. He puts the rulers in the sky and says, rule over the, the night and the day. And then in the fifth section on day five, God had swarms of, of fish and birds filling up all of creation. Well, in, on the fifth section of Solomon's life, all of Israel is filled up with blessings. All the Gentiles come and adorn Solomon's life. We saw that there in the end of chapter 4. And here now in chapter 5, we have the sixth section begin. On the sixth day of creation, God made Adam and he built the woman Eve. I want to get to that in a second. And here we see God, uh, uh, Solomon is now building the temple just like God built the woman. Now, on the seventh day of creation, when God rested, Adam failed to enter God's rest, which means Adam sinned. Adam and Eve sinned on the seventh day of creation, early on the seventh day of creation. And so Genesis 3 is about the fall of man on the seventh day of creation. And that's the latter part of Solomon's life. He falls into sin. He has so much gold, he has horses, and he has he has women, a thousand women that he grabs for and has. And those three things were outlawed in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, saying when you have kings, don't let your king grab for gold. Don't let him grab for horses. Don't let him grab for women. And that's exactly what Solomon does. But we'll see that later down the road. But that's the seventh section of Solomon's life and how he, he fails later in life. Now, just to let you know, I do think we, many people think he repented later in life because he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and basically said, don't do what I did. Uh, that's what Ecclesiastes is about. Um, so he writes that later in life, but that's the seven sections. So notice this. We're in the sixth section, and it cor corresponds with the sixth day. Why is that important? 
Because on the sixth day, there was a building project. On the sixth day, God built the woman. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, that's exactly what it says. The Lord took the side out of Adam, which had a clunk of flesh and bones. It wasn't just one rib, it was several ribs. Uh, it was plural. He took some bones and some flesh. And he, the scripture says and he built it into a woman and brought her to the man. That word built in the Hebrew is the word, it's pronounced this way, bana, not banana, but bana. That's how it's pronounced in Hebrew. This word built is used later in the Bible for building cities, for building altars, for building houses, for building temples, and even for building families. Listen to this. Um, Sarah, or Sarai, before her name was changed, she could not have children. And she goes to Abram in Genesis chapter 16, verse 2, and she says, here's Hagar. Have children through Hagar so she can build me up. She was looking forward to this other woman building a family for her. And she uses that word banah. It's the building. So the woman was built by God so she can build families. And what you can see in the Bible, the first female that God built, she is a prototype. She's a prototype of other buildings that God is going to build later continually throughout the Bible, especially the temple. So Solomon, at this time in his life, he's functioning in the image of God. Just as God built the first glorious woman, even so Solomon is building this glorious temple. Now that's the location. The lo location of this passage and why it's in the sixth section, it's a line of the sixth day. Now this is going to help, help explain also my, my second point. Not just the location of this passage, but the length of of this passage. I mean, you and I look at this and we say, why didn't we, the Bible just summarize all this stuff into a couple verses and say, yeah, it was a great temple and it was beautiful. Why is the length of this passage so long and this subject matter so extensive? There's four chapters that it takes up in the Bible explaining details of the furnishings and all this. And let me, let me also suggest this to you. If this was just a one-time event in the Bible, it may not mean that much, you know? It's kind of like lightning strike. When you see lightning strike one time at a tree, you're like, oh, wow, that's just, you know, an, an act of nature or something. It just happened to happen that way. But what if you're looking at the, at the tree and within one minute, there's a, a lightning strike. And then six seconds, 10 seconds later, there's another lightning strike. And six times in a row at the same spot, at the same tree, there's a lightning strike. You would be thinking this, God is up to something. Boom, boom, boom. Because lightning, as you well know, does not strike like that at all. It never does unless God is intentionally doing something. That's what the Bible does with temples. Temples in the Bible is not simply a one lightning strike. Temples are these building themes in the Bible. It's like a lightning strike that's happening constantly in the Bible. And every lightning strike I'm going to show you right now it's an extended, lengthy passage. This one we're looking at today that I pointed out is just one of them. Let me summarize some of the lightning strikes of long passages where a building is built. The first one I'm thinking about is Moses. In Exodus chapter 25, all the way to chapter 31, it's seven full chapters of seven speeches that God gives to Moses. 
And it's details and details about building this tabernacle, which is a prototype of the temple. And then later in the book of Exodus, it's not over. It simply, it goes after they do the the golden calf and do all this and they renew the covenant with, with Moses. There's six more chapters of just the fact that they did what God told them to do. And this is what they built. They built this, they built this, they built this. And you read it and you think, man, I'm kind of bored reading this. But it's long because there's a reason I'm getting to that. So that's another lengthy, two lengthy sections in the book of Exodus, at the end of the book of Exodus, of long descriptions of a building project. The second one I'm suggesting is also here in 1 Kings, we're seeing here with the four chapters here. And then it's repeated again in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, all the way to chapter 7. There's five chapters there that simply repeat what's here in 1 Kings. And then you move over to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, he comes many years later after Solomon. They burned down, the Babylonians burned down this temple of Solomon. And then Ezekiel has a vision. And there's seven full chapters just explaining the architecture of the building of this new temple that they're hoping to build when they come back from exile. And then you can include with this the book of Ezra. The whole book of Ezra is simply about rebuilding this temple. The whole book. And the book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and its walls. So I'm suggesting to you that the building project of God, it's like several lightning strikes that are happening right at the same time throughout the Bible over and over again. And God is basically saying this, Hey, y'all, look what I'm up to. Look what I'm doing throughout history. I'm building, I'm building, I'm building. The reason why these chapters are so long, this theme is so pervasive, is because that's how important it is. The woman was just a seed. The woman was just a prototype, a small little sample of what God's going to do with other types of building projects later in the Bible. He's going to build, he's going to grow it, and it's going to be massive. And by the way, I'm just in in the Old Testament. I haven't got to the New Testament yet. I'll get to that soon. Now, let's move on to my third point today. And last point. What is the logic behind the temple, the tabernacle, and all this building stuff? Why? What's the reasoning behind it? Here's a good summary point, and it's this. Here's the logic. The temple is a house where God and his people can come together, at least symbolically. You think about your family. You build a house, and mom and dad and children, they all come together. You have meals together, you have parties together, you have birthday parties together. All this is descriptive of your family. What is a family without shelter, without a house? And this is what God is doing. He is building a house where he can meet with his bride, with his family. Now, it's interesting that what Solomon says, let me quote you Solomon in chapter 8 of 1 Kings in verse 27 and following. He says this, it's in a prayer. He says, Lord God, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? It's a good question. How's God going to dwell on the earth? And he says, behold, Solomon says, heaven, that's the story heaven, and the heaven of heavens, that's the angel heaven, it cannot contain you, Lord, he says. How much less does this little temple that I built for you? And he says, 
Yet regard, to the, regard the prayer of your servant. Hear my prayer and supplication, that your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you said, I will put my name there. Okay, so think of this. God's in the heaven of heavens. So it can't even contain him. But he puts his name in this temple. And Solomon says this. Lord, may you hear the prayer of your servant that your servant makes toward this place. So think about this vertical and horizontal. God puts his name in this house. And then the people start praying toward the house. That's where they come together, at least symbolically. God's name, God's presence, and God's people, they come together in that house. It's a, it's a marriage. It's a place where they come together and God hears his bride, hears his people, and is with them, at least symbolically speaking. The priest goes in there on behalf and God meets them. So <clears throat> he says, Lord, hear our prayer so that when they pray toward this place, that you will hear from heaven and you will forgive them. This makes sense as to why later Daniel, when he prays, he will look toward Jerusalem. Okay, because he's looking toward to the location. This is a major theme in the Old Testament. So it's a joining place. It's a house where they come together. Now what I want to step back and show you uh, concerning the logic of this temple, I want to show you how this logic develops throughout the Bible. Because God develops houses, so to speak, or places where he and his people can come together. The first massive temple, or a, a type of temple, is creation itself. Think of this. God creates the angel heavens, surrounds himself with the angel heavens, and puts mankind on the earth. And then there is that relationship within creation. All of a sudden, mankind rebels. So therefore, he's kicked out of the garden. There's no fellowship between God and man. But what happens is God says, let's do this over again. Let's make a model of creation. Let's make the Moses' tabernacle. That's another type of temple, a type of presence where God's people can come there and he can symbolically come there and he has a house to meet with them. Then you have Solomon's temple here. It's a model of creation as well and also God's presence and their presence. Ezekiel's vision is the same thing later. Then let's now get to the New Testament. What happens later in the New Testament is someone approaches and says, there's one who is greater than the temple, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's physical body was a type of temple where God is there, and also we are there praying to the Lord Jesus Christ. He joins us together. Notice this. I want to quote to you several passages in the New Testament. John chapter 2, verse 18. The Jews answered Jesus and said, What sign do you show us that you do these things? And Jesus said, I will destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, Hey, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you want to raise it up in three days? But John says this. Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Therefore... When he raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he has said this to them and they believe the scriptures and the word that Jesus has said. So in one dimension, Jesus' physical body is a type of temple housing or expressing God's, God's presence on earth. Also, the spiritual body of Christ is another dimension of the temple. And that is you, the church, not this building, you, the people. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
There's people teaching false things upon in, in the church. And Paul says this, Don't you know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? He's speaking to the plurality of the people. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And he's speaking to the, to the corporate church, the full body of the church. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, he says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And the whole building is fitted together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians 2. Then later in the book of Revelation, as you well know, there's a city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven and God is with them. And this is interesting. In Revelation 21, 22, it says, I saw no temple in that city for God, the Lord Almighty, and the Lamb is its temple. The city had no need for the sun or moon or sun or to, to shine in it, and the glory of the Lord illuminated, and the Lamb is its light. Jesus Christ is that place where we join together God and man. Jesus Christ is the place. There's no need for a physical structure anymore for a temple dwelling because that's what's being symbolized whenever heaven comes down to earth with the presence of the visible church. So the spiritual body of Christ, as well as the physical body of Christ, is temple type in the sense that that's where we join God and man together. Now this is a very personal application as well. Not only is a church body as a whole the temple of God in that sense where he dwells in us and we in him, but also your body. Your physical body is a temple. In the book of 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> there was a lot of sexual immorality. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every man that a man sins or does, outside, he does outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, he says, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God with your body. It's fascinating that here in the new creation, the new covenant, no more is there a concern for making a structure, a physical structure, where you're hoping that God will meet you in that physical structure. It's a group of people. And your body is also housing the Holy Spirit. This is why you have God with you. This is why God's presence has come down from the heaven of heavens is joined, is in your body, and therefore you have responsibility over your body, a greater responsibility, because now it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you three quick applications as to why this is so significant to us personally and our viewpoints. Number one, this temple theology in the Bible, it corrects your view of the future. The reason why I'm saying this is because I grew up listening to people tell me that there was going to be a temple built uh, in, in, in Israel, a massive temple built in Israel sometime before the, the coming of Christ. And everybody was looking forward to maybe, you know, some kind of temple that was going to be built then at the end times. Um, that is a completely faulty view of the Bible. It doesn't realize that the woman was the prototype of the temple and the church is the final type. The church is the final type of the temple. You are the fulfillment of those promises. You, as a member of God's church, 
This is the continual future. The future is God building his church temple. That's why Paul is applying temple theology to the church. There's absolutely no desire in the Bible to build another temple in Jerusalem. As if it's going to be a union center between God and man. If it does, if they ever do, it'll probably be wiped off the face of the earth like it did in 70 A.D. So that's a correction of view of the future when you understand how the temple theology is being uh, um, your view of the future. Also, temple theology gives you hope for the future because of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus Christ has in the back of his mind the fact that he built the woman, okay, in Genesis chapter 2. And just as he built the woman, and just as he put down that serpent who attacked that woman, and just as he cursed that serpent who attacked that woman, he is going to continue to build his bride, his church, continually. And hell will not, will not prevail. What that means is the gates of hell are defensive. And the church is going to grow, 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 and conquer hell itself in the sense that it's going to overrun its gates. That's how optimistic the Lord Jesus Christ is about the future. We need this because we live in a small town. We live in a depressed economy. We live in a place where there's not a lot of people move into. It's helpful to get your, your head out of the bubble of Centerville and realize that, yeah, the kingdom is growing and growing and growing and growing. If it doesn't grow as much here, it's going to grow even more somewhere else. This is the true hope of the Christian future. Um, the word bana, by the way, in the, in the Hebrew, which is built, when you translate it into Greek, is tekton. The word tekton means builder. And that's the word used when Jesus was a son of a carpenter. He's a son of a tekton, the son of a builder. This is why the occupation of Jesus being a builder when he grew up it is a, it's a sample of what he's going to do even now. He's building his church. It's not an accident that Jesus was a builder in his adolescent years under the tutelage of his father, Joseph, growing up with, with him, his adopted father, because it's a sample of what he actually does throughout history. He's building his kingdom, building his church. It shows you this, that we also must have this drive to build. We have to have a drive to build and bring in people to the church, be like members and building the kingdom however we can to include people from all walks of life into the kingdom and bring them to faith and repentance. Lastly, let me also give you this application. <clears throat> it heightens your sense of personal responsibility when you realize that you are a temple in which God dwells. God is in you. His Holy Spirit is in you. That's why Paul uses the language he does. Flee from sexual immorality. Take care of your body, in other words. Watch what you do with your body because God is in your body. His Spirit is in you. How you treat your body is very important. We are not Gnostics. A Gnostic is someone who, says, who thinks, well, my body, there's nothing about my body. It has anything that I can do whatever I want. God doesn't care about my body. It's just going to return to dust. Not true. It's going to return to dust, yes, but before it does, God cares a lot about your physical body because He's in you. He's a temple. He's there dwelling in you. 
And so, when you sin with your body, in whatever way you sin with your body, you're sinning against your body and you're sinning against the Lord. You can also apply this with ethics concerning what's going on in our culture. As you well know, you see on the news quite a bit, people think they can mutilate their body and change it through operations and medical procedures from a male to a female or from a, a female to a male. It's called transgendering. That's a sin against their body. A Christian worldview can look at that and say a Christian could, should never think about doing that because God expects you to live according to your gender, whether male or female. And if you try to change yourself into something you're not, you're sinning against the temple that God has given to you. You're sinning against the temple of your body, and it's a form of sexual immorality when people do that. This is why ethically you could stand against this, the craziness of the transgenderism issues in our culture. Because the same principle that Paul is using in the first Corinthian church there in Corinth about sexual ethics, it applies to all types of sexual ethics. Do not sin against your body. God made your body. He made it male or he made it female. He has ethics. He has responsibilities. He has a biblical worldview. And he has the instruction manual in the scripture of how to glorify God with your body. So it heightens the sense of personal responsibility when you realize I'm not looking to a building anymore and praying like the, like the Muslims do to Mecca. You know, they look toward Mecca and pray. They still live in an old world mindset. We simply bow our heads and we pray to the Lord Jesus because he's in our hearts. He's in our church. His spirit is here. His spirit is with us. Heaven and earth, in a spiritual sense, have become one, has joined together. That's how much there's close fellowship and union with God and his people. So let that encourage us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will strengthen us with your word, that you give us a sense of the reality of your presence in our life, that you give us a sense of the responsibility that we have under, under you and toward others, to take care of ourselves, to use our bodies in a, in a ho holy manner for other people and for, for the good of others. We pray, Father in heaven, that the reality of the world and your incarnation and your presence with us will be felt by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.